And we are back on this Friday and back with the latest from Ukraine, where there have been some significant developments today. Russian forces have captured Europe's largest nuclear power plant, which just happens to be located in Ukraine. Now, the attack started a fire at the plant, which was extinguished by Ukrainian firefighters. And thankfully, there have been no changes to radiation levels after another day of intense fighting. Now, Irvin Student is editor-in-chief of Global Brief magazine, president of the Institute for 21st Century Questions, and joins us once again for more. Irvin, good afternoon, and welcome back to the show. Appreciate your time on this Friday. Good to be with you, Jeff. All right, first off, uh, I guess it seems obvious, but just how dangerous uh, was this uh, strike against this uh, nuclear plant? We, we don't know for certain, but, but if we take a worst-case scenario, of course, it's, it's catastrophic. It just shows that in war, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Or as Mike Tyson say, would say, uh, everyone has a plan until one gets punched in the face. So this is war, and there are all sorts of um, collateral catastrophes that happen, deliberate or not. And what does this uh, tell us about uh, Russia, about Putin, that they would uh, target something like this? I'm not sure it says anything beyond the the, the, the general war. The war is, a, is an aggressive war, and then within war, all sorts of terrible things happen. And so I'm pretty sure he himself wouldn't be thinking about that reactor. He's thinking about the, the general uh, course of the, the military action and, and the political dimensions. This would be for the generals and the soldiers that have to execute across a very large country. Ukraine is the largest country in Europe after Russia, bigger than Germany, and it's got a lot of legacy assets from the Soviet Union, and some of them nuclear, some of them military, and obviously a lot of them uh, human. Now, we do have reports the UN has been uh, meeting over this. Uh, What do you think the world response should be to this? I'm not sure there's a world response. The response to the war are overwhelmingly favorable to Ukraine in most countries, but there are significant countries that that have kept their powder dry, China, India, some African countries, some Middle Eastern countries. So those are large pockets of population. So it's not a world response, but when you talk about nuclear questions, if there's a nuclear accident, that's cataclysmic for the entire world, starting with Europe, but everything spills over into into a highly interconnected world that is just coming out of, stumbling out of the pandemic. So that's the last thing we want on top of a war that was unexpected and that will be destabilizing whatever the outcome for the next few decades. Right, Irvin, I also want to ask you, we got reports this afternoon suggesting that direct attacks on a uh, Russian convoy just outside of uh, Kiev, coupled with a destroyed bridge in that convoy's path, has actually stalled Russian forces about uh, 15 miles or so outside of the uh, capital and just wondering if you could talk to us a bit about what we've seen uh, the last few days, the past week, about the people of Ukraine, uh, their resolve, and uh, is this, do you think, is it frustrating Putin? I'm sure it is. I mean, the people of Ukraine, uh, I have my own family links in, 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 in Ukraine. My, my, my parents are from that, that region, but I speak as, as, a, as a Canadian. I think they're they're fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their country. So it is a fight to the, to the death, and it really is so that people understand it is the stake of the country, the existence of the country that's at stake. And the more time that passes, the more difficult it is for Russia to 
prosecute a, a political settlement that is a, that is stable. And on the other hand, it is very difficult to resuscitate a country that has been at war for weeks and months on end. So it will be ugly, whatever we imagine. And so the people of Ukraine are are, are probably fighting for their country, for themselves, for their, their children. On the Russian side, the soldiers are of uh, variable motivation and variable degrees of professionalism. So the top, I think, commando force, the most professional forces will will just follow orders and execute, I think, reasonably professionally, whatever the, the theater. On the, on, the, on the lower rungs, of course, there are regular soldiers that can be very young men, and as time goes, their morale would would fall, but the machine is is very big, and it will be very messy uh, on all sides. And if this is frustrating, Putin, Irvin, uh, do we believe? Do we think that uh, he might get more and more extreme, or this uh, building resistance, this resistance uh, to uh, this war, uh, the uh, Russian invasion, the uh, attack, uh, will it just maybe dawn upon Putin that uh, this is just a war that he's not likely to win? Well, I think, as I mentioned, that, that the outcome of the war, um, regardless of which side wins between quotation mark on the battlefield, is catastrophe for both Ukraine and Russia. It's inevitable. They are structurally, um, in terms of systems, very connected. And collapse of Ukraine will spill over into Russia, and the reverse is, is true. So the only viable outcome that, that keeps both countries as going concerns, as Europe stable and us stable, is one that creates an equilibrium between the two, and we're far from that. I don't know what Putin's psychology is right now. He's, this is a fin de règne, end of, end of reign uh, adventure that is a, intended, in my view, to inject energy into the Russian system rather than to, to do anything to Ukraine as such, that's his secondary interest. His secondary interest is Ukraine. The primary interest is Russia for for them. And it's a system that is running out of steam. It's a very big machine. And as he approaches the end of his reign, he wants to he wants to um, inject it with, with human energy, psychological, spiritual energy. That's how they think. And in, in the end, it might end up collapsing both systems, both the Russian and the Ukrainian one. So I think he's able to, he's likely to escalate but in the end, the the, the future might uh, appear very dark, at which point he'll probably aim for a political settlement. And But that will be unsustainable, given the, the balance of, of catastrophe on the ground. All right. And speaking of settlement, the Ukrainian delegation participating in talks with Russia said today that, uh, while they are aware that they know where Russia wants to go, concessions will never be made when it comes to Ukraine's territorial integrity. Is there hope, do you think, uh, Irvin, that uh, some sort of ceasefire here can still be agreed upon? I mean, should we take it as a good sign that the two sides are sitting down, that they're talking again? It's essential that that everyone be talking, including, by the way, us. Anything that, that forecloses on, on talking is, is foolish and for theater. It's for domestic consumption. However, the talks won't uh, bear fruit until the balance of forces, the balance of military results is more clear on the ground. Now, they, they may not be clear for some time because Russia is far from occupying the totality of the country. If they have that capacity, resistance is significant, and any political settlement 
may be unsustainable, that is, they won't be able to enforce it, even though it's written on paper. Um, I think Ukraine's options politically are very limited, but Russia's ambitions also may be impossible, given the the precariousness of, of the, the military and security situation on the ground. So we're in for a, a world of anarchy and chaos for, for some time to come. And just finally, I wanted to ask you about uh, the economic uh, response. We've seen more and more companies this week uh, joining in the uh, boycott of a Russia, namely uh, Apple, joining a growing list of companies. Uh, they've halted sales to uh, Russia. And there are some now calling, and technology, of course, has been at the forefront of this. Uh, a lot of people have been warning about cyber attacks against Canada and other countries from Russia as this conflict uh, continues. And some of them are now calling for things to maybe go a step further and actually uh, block Internet access to uh, Russian citizens. And just wondering your take on this. Do you think it would further isolate uh, Russia and force their hand? Or could it do more harm than good? Because uh, maybe the only way that uh, some Russians are getting some accurate information as to what exactly is happening going on uh, right now is through the Internet. It's tough to say. Um, Russia is so big. I even think that their leaders don't have a full appreciation of the, all the moving parts, even though they obviously run their country. We don't. So they have a, a better calculation and they would have pre-calculated some of this, these economic costs, even though I suspect they underestimated them. They would be playing for, for uh, a quick, a quick military victory. And obviously as time goes by, not only do the economic consequences become more painful, but the political instability, nervousness begins to 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 take hold. Uh, it's possible for us to overestimate our economic ability to our ability to economically impose that much pain on Russia. They are already somewhat decoupled from certainly Canadian markets and a number of other countries, and they're pivoting towards Asian markets and Indian markets and African Middle Eastern that remain open to them by and large, and they're pretty good at mobilizing and, and are nimble thinkers. I think uh, from the Canadian perspective, we have to um, prosecute uh, on, 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 at the same time as those sanctions. Imagine what a political settlement looks like that keeps Europe whole, keeps Ukraine and Russia whole, and, and keeps our northern flank stable, because we must understand for our own interests, Russia is not to the east of Ukraine, it is directly north of us. They control 50% of the Arctic. We control 25% of the Arctic. Those are the two giants. So it's not some abstraction. It's existential for us. It's existential for them. It's existential for, for Europe. And we need to find a clever equilibrium that in reality holds beyond hot rhetoric and tweeting and bon mot. So that really requires serious thinking. And out of the pandemic, it's going to be a big challenge for, for us. All right. I got to leave it there for now, Irvin. Really appreciate your expertise and your insight as always and your time on this Friday. Thanks again. Have a good weekend. You too. Irvin Student is editor in chief of Global Brief Magazine and president of the Institute for 21st Century Questions. And we're back after a break. You're listening to The Jeff MacArthur Show. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.